0: If you would turn with me or listen on as I read Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8, now for a second time. And hear God's word. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for truly John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. when we open the word, when we seek to try to understand it. But, but may we say that we need it in a special way when we seek to understand your work with the church as an abiding work, as a special work. And, and so we ask you, Holy Spirit, illumine your own work, especially as we consider it this evening and in so many sermons. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I think this sermon, in many ways... Is a highly necessary sermon. It's, it's a crucial sermon, uh, both for my own sake uh, and for yours. Uh, in case any of you are wondering, uh, in light of recent sermons, certainly this morning as, as pastor, have charismatic leanings we didn't know about? Uh, the answer is no, I don't. Uh, anything that I've said is only ever the result of reading reformed authors, always. Uh, but, but the question that we all have and we want to know in light of passages like Romans 8, but then as so we come to Acts chapter 1, especially in the whole of Acts, is how are we to understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit with the church, especially now that he's been poured out at Pentecost? And especially as that outpouring is described as the baptism with or of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's the really crucial category, isn't it? We want to know what is, or at least I want to know. In all of that I've been describing, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And then, is there anything beyond that? Well, this was something that I mentioned last time, was referenced, and I said, you know, there's different views. I didn't want to settle the debate here, and I didn't there, but I want to say something more on this now. I I realize, as I say, not just in light of the Romans 8 sermons, but also everything that I hope to say in Acts, Preaching it not simply as descriptive, but even in some measure prescriptive. In other words, there is something of a longing to know and to experience what these men did here. But that I wasn't prepared to do so. And certainly I wasn't prepared to explore the events in Acts chapter 2 until it was clear in my mind. About this question. And that is, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? That's really the question. Jesus is telling them here to look for it. And certainly we are to understand Pentecost in this light. Pentecost is the promised baptism with the Holy Spirit. And then seeing Pentecost in this way, namely uh, Acts chapter 2, the events of Acts chapter 2, the question becomes, in what sense are we baptized In the Holy Spirit. In other words, what is our relationship to Pentecost? What is our experience of the gracious ministry of the Holy Spirit in light of the events that occurred in Acts chapter 2, which Jesus calls the baptism with the Holy Spirit? Well, let me say this first of all, noting the significance of the word baptism. We find it stated like this in verse five for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. But then speaking of the same event, he says in verse eight, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now we notice something uh, interesting already in those two verses. Jesus is speaking of Pentecost, but he speaks of it in a varied way. We notice the different terms, the outpouring of the spirit and the baptism of the spirit are spoken of in the same way, describing the same event. So, likewise, uh, we could multiply examples. Uh, The gift of the spirit, chapter two, verse thirty eight. So we have outpouring gift and baptism all referring to the same thing. We have the promise of the father as a fourth term, chapter one, verse four. And so baptism with the Spirit is equivalent to all of these things. The gift of the Spirit, the outpouring of the Spirit, and the promise of the Father. Well, in seeking to answer this question, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And what is its significance today? I found this little book by Dr. Gaffin, and in particular one chapter, very helpful that chapter, uh, chapter two, The Gift of the Spirit. If any of you have this book, you might be interested to read that chapter. Ch- just chapter two of that book. I found it extremely helpful in clearing up uh, the confusion that I had in providing clear categories both for the early church and for the, uh, the abiding church. And so I plan here to more or less follow the outline of his argument in chapter two with my own addition in the end. He has three points, I offer four points. And so he offers, or he divides, rather, the matter like this. After asking the question, what is the significance of the gift or baptism of the Holy Spirit? That's the question. Both he and I am interested in, he divides it like this. First of all, the Spirit and Christ. We want to hurry on to the Spirit and me, but that's not where we should begin That's not where Jesus begins. That's not where Peter begins. We ought to begin with the Spirit's relationship to Jesus Christ. That is foundational. That is where Christ himself begins. Chapter 1, verse 5. Referring to the preaching of John. And what do we find in the preaching of John? Which we read of in Luke chapter 3 and is referred to, to here just in this single verse. Well, when John preached spirit baptism, he did so not as a reality of his own ministry, but he did so by way of anticipation. So that in this, John was among the Old Testament prophets who looked forward, along with men like Joel and other prophets, to the coming outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Again, these terms are synonymous, the outpouring, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That was uh, uh, a hallmark of the preaching of many certainly it was f- f- a, uh, a, a, a crucial feature in John's preaching you could say it was the hallmark now in doing so we notice that both Jesus and John point to baptism as the point which both held in common John would baptize with water. Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit. It's what they held in common, but it's also what distinguished their ministries and ultimately distinguished these two dispensations, the Old and the New Covenants. For again, John baptized merely with water and to repentance, but Jesus would be responsible in his coming for this climactic prof- uh, prophetic outpouring of the Spirit. So he spoke by way of anticipation, of spirit baptism in light of the coming of Christ. I baptize you with water, but the one who is coming after me, he will baptize you with the spirit and with fire. He would come, and in coming, he would baptize. That's how John preached the coming of Christ. Now, two facts are relevant here. One is that he spoke of it as the work of Christ. You see, he says... Jesus would be the baptizer. John was the baptizer. So was Jesus. John baptized with water. Jesus baptized with the Holy Spirit. This is is hugely relevant for what we're going on to consider as we develop this theme of baptism in the Holy Spirit. Whose work is it? It's the work of Jesus Christ. He's the one who does it. John is saying he's the one who will do it. Well, we're able to say he's the one who's done it. Now, the second relevant factor, which is more just... One of, of, of interest with respect to John's ministry. John seemed to think of Christ's ministry solely in terms of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He will baptize you with, baptism, uh, uh, with, the, with the Spirit and fire. He seemed to, uh, to envision Jesus bringing the final days, uh, the very end of days. Not just the outpouring of the Spirit, but the fires of judgment. And this was so perplexing to John. That that he even asked the question, you remember, are you the one, or, or should we look for another? Well, John didn't fully understand uh, the breadth of Christ's work. This wasn't his only work. It was more like the culmination of his work, the climax of his work, as we'll see. And yet at the same time, While it was the end of one stage, it was the beginning of another. It didn't bring the end of days, but it was the dawning of a new age. And the end of the age, the coming fires, which were also prophesied, would come much later. But there's something else to say with reference to John's baptism and Jesus' baptism with the Holy Spirit. And that is the fact that Jesus was baptized by John, the baptism with water. And that in this event, when Jesus was baptized by John in the rivers of the Jordan, he was baptized with the Holy Spirit in his human form. He became full of the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 3, verse 22. I didn't read that, did I? Well, let me read it now. I went to verse 20. And what do we immediately read? John baptizes Jesus. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, you are my beloved son. In you I'm well. Please do you see? It's, it's the same idea. Let's not get hung up on the terms to say, The spirit descended on him or was poured out from heaven is to say precisely that Jesus was baptized with the Holy Spirit in just the same way that it was predicted that he would later do from heaven when he was ascended and as he did in Acts chapter two. And so it all fits together. That's why Jesus references the ministry of John and compares his work to John as John himself did in chapter one, verse five of Acts. But then as we go on, we're still under the first heading, by the way, the Spirit in Christ. As we go on in, in Acts, we find something far more significant with that at the background. We find Peter's Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2. And now the preaching of Peter takes on a different form than the preaching of John. The preaching of John was the, the, that of anticipation, but the preaching of Peter was that of Fulfillment. You remember, he says, brothers, that which you read long ago, you now hear and see with your own eyes. Something like that, at least. But did you notice this as well? In other words, he's saying, well, the Holy Spirit has come. The baptism of the Spirit has come in your very midst. But, th- but did you notice how it came? And how its significance was described in Acts chapter 2? Certainly we'll have ample opportunity to consider this. But 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 the hallmark of Peter's preaching was the hallmark hallmark of John's preaching. Peter did not preach the Holy Spirit. That isn't what we find in Peter's Pentecost sermon. We find Peter preaching Jesus Christ, and he describes the coming of the Spirit as the culmination of the work of Christ. You remember what Jesus said in John chapter seven verse thirty nine. He says, he spoke, this is John speaking, he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. You see, that's it. Jesus needed to be glorified first, then the spirit would come. Then the promise of the father would come upon the church or or what Peter says in Acts chapter two, verse thirty three. He had been speaking of the work of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ. He says this Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. Verse thirty two, verse thirty three. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. You've been baptized with the Holy Spirit by Jesus Christ. How? As a result of his being endued with or endowed with and pouring out the Holy Spirit upon the church as the resurrected Lord, the exalted Lord. So that Peter, in preaching Jesus Christ, describes in reality four pivotal events. He describes uh, the necessity of the death of Christ, but beyond that, the resurrection of Christ. And even beyond that, the exaltation and ascension of Jesus Christ into the presence of the Father. But even then, the work of Christ is not completely preached until Peter is able to say, and I along with him, that Jesus Christ, number four, is the exalted Lord, pours out the Spirit upon the church. That also belongs in this complex of saving events that began at Calvary, or even before that, that began With his coming into the world. And so what Peter preaches. I say again at at Pentecost. Is not the spirit but Christ. And this sheds important light. On the promised coming spirit. For his coming could only be accomplished. It could only be appreciated. Experienced and understood. In light of the work of Jesus Christ. Apart from Jesus Christ. There could be no baptism with the Holy Spirit. So that we are able, I think, in light of the way that Acts begins to understand Pentecost like this. You remember what Luke says at the beginning of Acts. He says, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. Well, here is the ongoing ministry of Jesus Christ. Luke is already telling us. And then, well, we find Peter preaching uh, precisely that. Peter is saying Christ is still at work. He's still alive. He's still animating the church in new ways. What am I saying? I'm saying that Pentecost, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, must be seen first and foremost as the work of Jesus Christ. He's the one who does it. It's the work that he continues to do. Not only that, but something further must be seen. Something further that Jesus Christ is doing at Pentecost That something further is the identity between Christ and the Spirit. Christ himself must be identified with the Spirit. Not as the same person, for the personal distinctions in the Godhead must never be confused. But as occupying the same role. The same function. This is what I mean. In chapter 14... Of John's gospel. In verse 18. Jesus says this. And by the way. All that we read in the upper room discourse. Is the promise of the father. That he referred to in Acts chapter 1. He says. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now that occurs in the context of him promising. Not only that he would depart. But the spirit would come. And in the context of saying that, he says, I'm not leaving you as orphans. I will come to you. Beyond that, we find the Apostle Paul saying something like this in Acts chapter 15, verse 45. Now, it's these kinds of observations that I'm especially dependent on Gaffin for, Dr. Gaffin. He says, Paul speaking of Christ in his resurrection, which Peter spoke of as well. And his relationship to the spirit in his resurrection, he says, as Peter did. And so it was written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now, in some of your translations, mine as well, that S is lowercase. But Gaffin suggests, and I'll go along with him, that that ought to be an uppercase S. Jesus Christ in his resurrection, in other words, became, he was identified with the life-giving Spirit, the Holy Spirit, capital S. Well, take that together with another passage. Romans chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. Remember, if the Spirit of God is in you, you are his. But if he isn't, you're none of his. That's verse 9 and verse 10. If Christ is in you, and on and on he goes. Clearly, Paul is identifying the Spirit of God with Christ himself. The Spirit of God is in you. Well, Christ is in you. In other words, being indwelt by the Spirit of God and by Christ are one and the same reality such that they might be spoken of interchangeably. Looking at all of these passages together, John 14, Acts 2, 1 Corinthians 15, Romans 8, the picture becomes clear. We are able to say that not only does Jesus, uh, having been given the Holy Spirit in his resurrection pours out the spirit upon the church. But he himself enters into the life of the church as the life-giving spirit. He pours out the spirit upon the church and he comes to the church as the spirit. In other words, to consider the work of the spirit is to consider what Jesus continued to do having been raised up to the right hand of the Father. He not only pours out the Spirit on the church, I say again, but he comes to the church as the Spirit. I will not leave you as orphans, Jesus says. I will come to you. How does he come to us? He comes to us as the life-giving Spirit having been raised. And what Pentecost therefore represents is the permanent possession of Jesus Christ himself. Not his going away, but his coming to the church. Abiding both in and among believers by virtue of his possession of an identity with the Holy Spirit as the exalted Lord. Therefore, being highly exalted, Peter says once more, Acts chapter 2, verse 33 to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out this which you now see and hear. And in pouring out he came to the Church. Well, that brings me to the next point. Again, following Gaffin's outline, and that's the Spirit in the Church. The Church is the focus of Pentecost. The Church is the focus of Acts the church is the object or the recipient of the promised holy spirit who is it that is baptized with the holy spirit well the answer is the church and just as we could frame the question a little differently who's the savior who is christ the savior of the answer is christ is the savior of the church and the book of acts especially makes that clear and so it is to the church that the holy spirit is both promised and poured out but here's what we need to see understanding the relationship between Uh, Pentecost and the church like this Pentecost or baptism with the Holy Spirit is the event which brings the church into into being it's the beginning it's the establishment of the church the New Testament the new covenant church in that sense we could see uh, Pentecost as being among the great facts of history something that God does in carrying redemption forward. And Acts becomes, in that sense, the record of the origins of the church, how she came into being. Well, the answer is, as a result of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This possession or blessing of the Holy Spirit, though seen as a great and powerful effusion, as well as an abiding gift upon the church, let us also see is still yet partial. In other words, in coming into being, the church does not come into the greatest and the highest fullness and experience of the spirit that she might ever enjoy. We read in Acts, we read elsewhere that the church as a result of Pentecost is now full of the spirit, enjoying uh, the fullness of the spirit in a way never known before. Nevertheless, we also realize in Acts and in The epistles, and certainly we are bound to realize this ourselves as well, even tonight, that to speak of the fullness of the Spirit is to speak, like John, of an eschatological reality. It's to speak of something that can never be enjoyed in this life. It's something that can only be enjoyed perfectly, fully, as an abiding possession in heaven. As as Paul says in another place, the gift that we now enjoy of the Spirit, even the fullness of the Spirit, is but a foretaste of the glories to come, which is to say a greater enjoyment and more permanent possession of the fullness of the Spirit will not be enjoyed in this life, but in the next. What we enjoy now and know, we enjoy and know only in part. And part of the present enjoyment, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, as we'll later see, is productive of the hope of what is to come. Being full of the spirit, in other words, is precisely what produces hope of something better in each of us. But that brings me now as a third point, again along with Gaffin, to the spirit and the believer. In other words, seeing the role, the identity of the spirit with Christ and the role of the spirit in the church, in establishing the church. The third point is the spirit and the believer following Pentecost. Bringing us to today. The question is: what is the relevance of Pentecost today, understood as baptism with the Holy Spirit? And there are many who say, and I'm not one of them, but there are many who say that the relevance of Pentecost for today is something like this. That though we are believers like these disciples, we have been saved, we've been converted, we still need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That is the teaching of the charismatic church. I've been there. I've been through that. Many of you have as well. They say, "Uh, brother, it's wonderful that you're a believer in Jesus Christ, but you need to get the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And along with that, uh, certain gifts like tongues and other things, prophecy. But I should tell you that they're not the only ones who teach this. I'm sorry to say, uh, for all of my agreement with Martin Lloyd-Jones, I find that I am at odds with him on this point. For what I am describing in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, but especially in verse 16, the testimony of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, or chapter 5, verse 5, the shedding abroad of the love of God in our hearts. He describes it in a way that I would never do, and he describes it as a baptism of the Holy Spirit as a second experience of grace. Well, I'm, I'm all about second and third and fourth experiences of grace. Of reaching higher and higher in our experience of the fullness of the Spirit. And I'll keep preaching that. But you'll never hear me call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Let me try to defend myself. The first great point to be made is that Pentecost is a unique, unrepeatable, once-for-all historic event. Indeed, it must be viewed by us as part of the historic work of Christ, exactly as Peter himself preached it. And thus it belongs in exactly the same category as those other aspects of the work of Christ that Peter preached as well. The death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ – The outpouring of the spirit at Pentecost. These things are once for all unrepeatable. They're not things that you look for repetition. And in looking for repetition. Well you open yourself to all kinds of error. Now what I'm doing here in this sermon. Is laying a foundation for for what is to come. I'm, I'm, I'm seeking to build my teaching in Acts and in Romans. On clear thinking and clear categories. But as we venture out beyond Acts to the writings of Paul, we find him referring to the spirit as the permanent possession of the church. The church has already received the spirit. In other words, Paul speaks of the spirit is already given, not as a future event, not by way of anticipation like John, but by way of fulfillment like Peter, an event already accomplished and already enjoyed by all who are in Christ. And that is true then, and it is still true today, just as much as other features of our salvation. These things are already accomplished. Now we're enjoying them. One passage that's especially instructive here uh, in any discussion of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or with the Holy Spirit, is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. He says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greek, whether slaves or free, and all have been made to drink into one spirit. This statement supports what I've just been saying. Namely, that because the spirit has already been given at Pentecost, this means that those who live in the wake of Pentecost, that for them, conversion is their baptism with the Holy Spirit. To be engrafted into Christ by faith is to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Or if you like, this is our share in the great event at Pentecost. We weren't present on that day any more than we were present on the day that Jesus Christ was raised. And yet by the Holy Spirit, we are made to partake of that event. We have all, Paul says, been baptized into the same body, into the same Christ, by the same Spirit. We are all alike in that sense now that Pentecost has come. We are all made to share in the same reality. That is the ongoing relevance of Pentecost today. It is the way that, in a way that could not be said before, our salvation involves and consists in our being baptized with the Spirit. You couldn't say that before Pentecost, but now you can. To be a Christian, to be saved, to be converted, is to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. But there is at the same time no room for the notion that there is such a thing as a believer who is not baptized with the Holy Spirit. Let me say that so clearly that I say it again. There's no such thing as a believer who has not been baptized with the Holy Spirit. There isn't the slightest notion of that. In scripture, Yes, there is the notion of a believer who is yet to reach and experience certain heights of the Christian life, certainly. And these heights come and are enjoyed uh, precisely as he uh, is filled further with the fullness of the spirit. No doubt about that. But such a person. Is one who is a Christian already, one who has been. Baptized with the Holy Spirit. What Acts tells us about is how the Holy Spirit was poured out, not on some, but upon all the church and what happened as a result. And yet we must appreciate how this does not give us the full picture. And I've already been. Well, I've already been saying that if not. uh, Well, I have been saying that. That isn't the full picture. Baptism in the Holy Spirit. Conversion is in Everything. Having been baptized with the Holy Spirit, either at Pentecost or in our conversions, that's what's true of all of us, after Pentecost, we are baptized with the Spirit. The moment we believed, having been baptized with the Spirit, there's still room for further experiences. In other words, baptism with the Holy Spirit isn't the end, it's the beginning. That's the Reformed teaching. That's the teaching of Dr. Gaffin. That's the teaching that I'm stressing here. You say... Well, you're talking about these further experiences. Have you become a charismatic? No, I haven't. Because I'm not identifying these things with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But I am suggesting to you that we as Christians, and even as Reformed Christians, ought to be open to the possibilities. We ought to be open to the kind of things uh, that uh, that might happen to a Christian man who is full of the Spirit and who is being filled with the Spirit day by day. There is still room for further experiences. You say a second blessing? I say yes. Well, what about a third blessing? Yes, a third blessing, a fourth, a fifth. I, I tell you, that is exactly how Dr. Gaffin taught it as well, by the way. I not only read his book, but I sat under his teaching. I'm in full agreement with him on this point. There, There is room, there there has to be room, based upon the nature of this baptism, for further and greater experiences of the Spirit. Indeed, the New Testament all but demands that such will be the case for all believers. For I say again, baptism is only the beginning. But from there we go on and we continue to enjoy and experience and grow in the spirit. That's the way that the New Testament portrays the believer, the Christian who's been baptized with the spirit. But it's just here that the confusion enters in. And I understand on some level that the matter is bound to be confusing. We're describing I felt the tension this morning. I still feel it even now as I think about it, as I try to describe these things. We're talking about the realm of of, of human experience as a Christian. How do we describe this? And how do we compare our experiences of the Spirit and of grace with what we read in Scripture? Well, and what if it doesn't match exactly? Well, this is, as I'm saying, where the confusion enters in. Though let there be no confusion about the question of baptism with the Holy Spirit. But the question is, well, what are we to call this? If we say, well, I had a second experience of grace, and then, well, you know, I had a third and a fourth. I was made by the Spirit to cry out, Abba, Father. It was a tremendous, it was a profound experience. Or in another case, I found the Spirit testifying to me as I hope to preach next week in a distinct and remarkable and heart-melting way that I was a son of God. He was shedding the love of God abroad in my heart. What are we to call that? I find in this new way, this new experience, that I've become so full of the Spirit, The spirit it's as though I was converted all over again. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever experienced the spirit like that? It was such a distinct, such a remarkable thing. It was as though you were converted anew. Well I'm saying that's where the confusion enters in. What are we to call this? These new, these fresh experiences of power and of grace and of the fullness of the spirit. Do we not find the Apostle Paul telling us to be filled with the spirit? Is that not the command to post Pentecost believers? Those who've been baptized with the Spirit. What does he say? Be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18. Does he say be filled with the Spirit once or twice? No, he doesn't. He says be filled with the Spirit as a present continuous command or imperative. Always. Not once or twice, but all the time. Be, uh, let me offer uh, uh, alternate translations. Be being filled with the Spirit. Always be full of the Spirit. Or what about this? I once read Wayne Grudem say this. I know we're not supposed to quote Wayne Grudem in these settings and in connection with the Holy Spirit. Wayne Grudem is a charismatic. He's a reformed charismatic, but I I quite agree with him on this point. Grow in your capacity to be full of the Spirit. You're full of him now, but did it ever occur to you that you might become fuller still? You're like a cup that's being filled, but... Suppose the cup were to grow, the stature of the cup were to grow. He he was capable. He would be capable of a greater fullness, be being filled, grow in your capacity to be full of him. That's what the life of sanctification is all about. But it is precisely here that it seems to me as, as well as Dr. Gaffin. And I hope that you will agree that this is the best way to describe these ongoing experiences of the grace of the Holy Spirit. These additional encounters of his fullness and grace. Not as baptism. For baptism is of the very nature of the case once and for all. But as being filled. Being filled with the Spirit. And the believer Having been baptized with the Spirit, might be filled more and more and more. One of the most instructive passages in uh, in Acts, in my mind, is what we read in Acts four thirty one. Very shortly after Pentecost occurred, we read this is the second part of the verse, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with with boldness. They weren't baptized with the Spirit; that's already occurred, and yet. Now they were filled with the Spirit. What was the result? They were now preaching the word with boldness. Well, were they not doing that in Acts 2? Yes, they were. They were filled with the Spirit then. And yet we find them having, can we call it a second experience of grace? Again, they were filled with the Spirit. I would even suggest to a greater degree now. They were experiencing, they were enjoying the the fullness of the Spirit. So I am saying this. You can be full of the Spirit and yet be filled still more. You are never so full of the spirit that you can't be filled even more. Acts chapter 2 leads on to Acts chapter 4. The baptism of the spirit leads to a greater fullness of the spirit. And that is the pattern I'm suggesting we find on an individual level as believers. We experience spirit baptism like the early church in Acts 2 as a once for all event. In our case at conversions. And yet we find second, third, fourth, endless experiences of grace And of greater fullness. And we call that being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what the Christian life is like. It is a growing and and ever increasing experience of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. But it's wrong to call those experiences, whatever they are, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so you will not find me doing that in Romans chapter 8. If you ever find me describing something like a mountaintop experience, and you might disagree with me. You might say, well, you know, Romans chapter 5 and, and uh, Romans chapter 8, these are more the ordinary experience of the believer. I'll, I'll, uh, well, I'll entertain such notions in the coming sermon. I suggest they're more like a mountaintop experience. But either way, either way, let us recognize that we are describing something that is in an addition and is a result of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Let me go on to my fourth and final point. And try to finish before the hour is filled. And that is the spirit and revival. That's my own addition. Now here I might find myself somewhat at odds with Dr. Gaffin. And more in line with Martin Lloyd-Jones. The spirit and revival. Well there is. I've said before. There is the more ordinary work of the spirit. And then there are times of extraordinary outpourings. Uh, As to the ordinary working of the spirit. I would suggest to you. I doubt anyone would quarrel with this point. That we are living in such days. And we ought not to despise such days. Uh, Concerning this, I would remind you of what Buchanan said. He says, the Holy Spirit is not limited to any one mode of operation in the execution of his glorious work. And his sovereignty ought ever to be remembered when we are considering a subject of this nature. It's unfortunately been too much overlooked when on the one hand, some of us have insisted, as we think, with undue partiality and confidence... Uh, on a general and remarkable revival as being in itself the best manifestations of the spirit grace spirits grace and as being in all cases a matter of promise to believing prayer and when on the other hand not a few have looked to the quiet and gradual success of the gospel ministry to the exclusion or at least disparagement of a more sudden and remarkable work of grace. Well, you see, he's making this distinction. I think it's a helpful one. He's saying there is the ordinary, the common workings of the Spirit, and those... I know we're not living in such days, but the church has in other days, in the prior century especially, lived in days where it seemed that's all anyone ever talked about was revival, as though the church could never go on except in seasons of revival. They were despising these more common gradual experiences of the spirit. But at the same time, he says, and I think this is the error of the present day, there are those who live in days of ordinary things and they never imagined that anything greater might happen in their own day. That the spirit might come with power again as he did at Pentecost. Well there is more ordinary work. The more ordinary workings of the spirit. But there are also times I am suggesting of extraordinary outpouring upon the church. What we call revival. If we agree not to call this baptism with the Holy Spirit. Let us not confuse the two ideas. May we not at least see certain parallels with Pentecost. Pentecost. And with these sub- subsequent outpourings in Acts, what I'm saying is that even though there is this once for all significance to Pentecost, nevertheless, there are certain features that are repeatable. And not only are they repeated in Acts, but in the history of the church, such times of the Spirit's outpouring we call revival, times of tremendous blessing and power, times when, like here in Acts, we find the church uh, uh, full of the Spirit's power. We find a general outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I, I, I have I have quotes to read to you. I'll save those for future sermons. Let me let me close with these two thoughts, two main takeaways. The first is eliminate the confusion. We must not treat Spirit baptism as something in addition to conversion. It is not. First Corinthians chapter twelve verse thirteen. At the same time, as a second point, we must understand the possibilities which are present now that the Spirit has come. Upon the church as an abiding reality. Now that we as believers in the church have been baptized with the spirit. For this is, I say again, only the beginning. We must continue as those who are baptized with the spirit to look for seasons and times of his fullness. We must pray for it. If we are conscious, for instance, of a lack of power in our Christianity. And in the church, then we must seek the spirit in a greater way. We must, in other words, heed the admonition to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Perhaps we are not as full of the Spirit as we might. And then to look for his blessing in his own timing and in his own way. Who can say when and how the Spirit will come with power upon the church and upon the Christian? Oh, but I am saying we must look for it. We must be open to it. We must pray for it. In doing so, I say again, we must not disparage the Spirit's ordinary working in the church. We must not ever say that because the spirit is not working in a tremendous way that he's not working. No, he is working. And yet we are still entitled to look and pray for further seasons of his power. And to find at Pentecost certain elements that are bound to accompany such seasons, times of revival, such as new power, freedom, boldness, great numbers of conversions, a a deep and abiding sense of assurance prevailing with all. And so on. Let us always hope. And long to be filled. With the spirit. So that we might be enabled. As these men were in Acts chapter 4 verse 31. To speak the word of God. With boldness. Amen. And let us. Let us return now our thanks to God. By standing together and singing. Hymn 391. Hymn 391. Please stand.